HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Dave Arnold, your host of Kicking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, mostly every Tuesday. We missed last Tuesday because I was teaching, oh, from 12 to 12, uh, yeah, 45-ish. Anyways, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So, Stas, while I'm calling up today's questions, why don't you tell them what we did last week? We did, a, we, you taught a, a class on carbonation with Shivas. Uh, at the Nomad Hotel. Which is a nice place. Mm, yeah, beautiful. and Stas does what she does best in these uh, situations, which is sit in the background and just shake her head disapprovingly the entire time. She's like, listen, I've heard she doesn't talk like this. She's right next to me. You can hear her talk. Listen, I've seen you do this demo 8,000 freaking times, and everything new you add is wrong, <laughs> right? Is that pretty much what, that's what you feel, right? No. It's the same anecdotes that you tell. Uh, like what? Oh, like just the, your trials with carbon. Like, well, I have I to know. tell them specific. I know, I know, but I just it's like, not like on, 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 on like, the radio. I try not to repeat. Yeah. But yeah. like, if you have a specific thing to say that illustrates how not to carbonate, right? Then uh, what's the matter? You got a bug bite or something? Uh, right now, like jumped out. What's of this up, Heritage Radio Network? Show that I'm sitting on. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe you. Uh, it is true. There, have any of you been to Nogales, Mexico? No. Like it's like we're a warehouse for Nogales Mexico blankets right now. Like Nostalgia City, Nogales is uh, unfortunately no offense, Nogales, but it's the only place in Mexico that I've ever been, and I'm trying to rectify that as soon as possible. Go to what I would consider real Mexico. It's like what's fake? What's fake U.S.? Like if someone were to come to the U.S. and they're like, "This is all they saw," you'd say, "Yeah, you haven't been to the U.S. What would that be?" Hmm. Newark. No offense to Newark. Like, what if you landed in? What if you flew into Newark I guess Airport? Any airport, right? What if you flew into Newark Airport? No offense, Newark. You know, I used to live in Jersey, holding you know, on, whatever. But what if you landed in Newark Airport and were like, "Okay, I'm here." And it's got the closest hotel to Newark Airport, and that's where you stayed the whole time. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a fun trip. 
Did Jack tell Dave about what email you got today? Oh, yeah, I got a promotional email from like Orbitz or something, and it was like, hey, Jack, pack your bags. You're going to New York. (laughs) Oh, geez. Hey, here's here's an interesting factoid, may or may not be true, uh, about packing your bags. Uh, See, that is what we call bad uh, cookie editing, bad kind of data sifting to try and and give you a trip. Tell me about it. All expenses paid uh, on the L train, huh? Big whopping $2.50. A little bit of a discount if you have the Metro card. Anyways, so uh, you familiar with the private browsing thing? I'm sure you are, Stas, because your whole family is paranoid about being tracked. No, I don't know. So on, on your Mac and other things, you can hit a button that basically says that your browser is no longer going to store cookies. Oh, wow. And like, you know, nine out of ten people, they use it for the porn. So they, their porn can't be tracked. Right, Jack? You're familiar with this, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> not the porn necessarily. Not the porn part, but the... Well, I mean, yeah. not necessarily. The, no incog- the incognito window. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know if this is true. I'd like to hear something from any, uh, any SEO folks out there. But uh, apparently, if you uh, go to look up uh, an airplane flight to Mazatlan yeah. or Acapulco, something like this talking about, like, if you go look up a flight to there, and you're like, nah, I'm not going to buy it right now. And you go back, like, five days later to look on at it. On your private. On, no, no, no. On, on your regular, regular computer. Yeah. The prices are higher. Absolutely yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, no, I've yep. seen that. It's because they're tracking you, and they yeah. know you want to go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you log in with private browsers, browsers for money, browse what you want me to browse, yeah. then they gives you the old price again. That's crazy. That's and so, disappointing about the yeah, world. That's I mean, so used car salesmen. Mm-hmm. No offense to people who sell used cars. There's many honest ones. Makes me mad. But it's like, you know. Why that's are you shafting so me? Because see, this is what everyone's like. I'm going to keep looking at the prices because they think that that's they're like a good thing to do. Those prices are and they're at looking you. at you, yeah. looking at the prices, and hosing you as a result. So we got a cool uh, auction here to uh, help benefit uh, Heritage Radio Network. This programming uh, is free for you, but not free for us to produce. So we have a bid to win a day at the Modernist Cuisine Cooking Lab in Bellevue, Washington with Nathan Mirvold and the Modernist Cooking Crew. One of the most visionary food technology and business leaders of our time, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to experiment in the kitchen yourself with Nathan Mirvold and his team of chefs, chemists, physicists, and machinists. Peruse new cooking innovations, ask all of your burning questions and questions about burning, and bring home a signed copy of the photography of Modernist Cuisine. Place your bid on this package on CharityBuzz.com now. Let's get to some of last week's questions. Brian Garrick wrote in about Shadberries and ice cream. Hello, Cooking Issues team. Hope you're staying cool and dry. I am not. I am a big pile of sweat, although I was telling Stiles, I made it in re- I mean, late as usual, but record time for me. I made it. You ready for this? Not door to door. Computer to radio. Computer to radio in 15 minutes from my house. So you left at 11.55? 53. Yeah, comp- yeah. At like I was like, d- like how'd you do that? Uh, well, I've I I feel like I'm I'm melting like the Wicked Witch of the West right now, but I just I just like I made sure that I was putting just as much power into the upstroke because I got straps on my on my bike uh, as I did into my downstroke, and it's like I felt like people on the bridge were standing still because I was so anxious because of how late I was. But you know, I was I've, I've been cooking all morning. I was cooking all morning and doing the radio questions. Wow! So give me a, give me a break. Give me a freaking break. Made a lot of cocktails this morning. Not to drink. Not to drink. I wasn't drinking. It'd be amazing if you were just completely wasted. I was like, ah! <laughs> no, but I made uh, some of the cocktails from uh, the book actually for this thing I have to do tonight. And uh, did you ever have the vermouth in the freezer cocktails? The vermouth blender cocktails. So I'll give you the basic outline. You have to buy my book for the exact recipe. Ooh, no. Um, so you take, I've, it's called Ebony and Ivory, and I got, I got a Dolan Blanc vermouth, which is, you know, the semi-sweet white Dolan, and uh, I mix that one with a little bit of vodka up to proof, 
water and lime juice, pinch of salt, right? And you get the alcohol level right so that when you put it in, just like the Italiano Stagliano, when you put it in a Ziploc bag and throw it in the freezer, it turns into like a slushy drink in your freezer without you having to do anything. And then the other one, that's, that would be the ivory. And the ebony is Carpano, a little bit of vodka and uh, water, pinch of salt. And you, you serve them. You mix it? Like no, no, no. You serve them side by side in perfect harmony. Mm, yeah. Like Paul and uh, what's his name? What do you mean, what's his name? I can't remember. Stevie freaking Wonder. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not going to get into it. Stevie Wonder, one of the, Jack, one of the greatest modern musicians, like, that ever, right? I mean, Stevie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know what? People get all pissed because, uh, you know, kind of like the jungle fever and plus era of his life. But if anyone that I'd ever met had come up with any one album when he was in his prime, any one of those songs, like Boogie On, Reggae Woman, if you come up, if, if, if someone's like, you were a one-hit wonder, you're like, yeah, but it was, it was Boogie On, Reggae Woman. You'd be like... <laughs> All right. You know what I mean? Because that's, that's, that's just so awesome. Anyway, Brian Garrick, Shadberries. Uh, oh, yeah. My God, I go on tangents. Do we want to take a caller first before jumping in there? Sure, sure. Okay. Caller's on the line. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. Uh, thanks for taking my call. This is Garrett in uh, San Diego. Oh, nice. What's up? Um, I was just um, I was thinking the other day, I am a fan of cottage cheese. I like cottage cheese. And I also like goat cheese. And I looked... To see if they make a goat cottage cheese, and I couldn't find anything. Um, have you ever heard of this, or is it even possible? And what are the differences between, I guess, goat milk and whatever they use in cottage cheese? I guess cow, maybe sheep's milk. Huh? You know, I like. I mean, I eat a lot of cheese, but I'm not really an expert uh, on the manufacture of cheese. Um, you know, my guess is that you could probably do a mixed milk one. Because there's a lot of mixed milk cheeses that uh, have um, curds that work like uh, curds that work somewhat like cow's milk, uh, but I mean, just my experience with fresh goat cheese is that it's got a very different kind of paste, and that you have to age it for a long time. But I could be totally wrong. You know what I mean? But I would guess that if you fortified it with cow milk, you could get it to work. This is something that, you know what we should, what we should do, honestly. Jack, are you listening to this? I'm here. We should get can, – can you post a question into uh, uh, Cutting the Curd? Absolutely. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get their response, and then we'll read it back uh, on, the, on the air next week. That would be awesome. You want to do that? Yep. Are you all right with that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be great. I'd really appreciate it. I mean, you're right. The only fresh goat cheese that I know of has a much more – and chalky texture, not yeah. really cottage cheesy, but so what I, I mean, like if you had uh, like all the delicious mixed milk cheeses from uh, Italy, yeah, yeah. So those mixed milk cheeses can have like textures that are in between any of those, you know. And I've had very aged uh, goat cheeses that have a so- only goat that have a fairly solid texture, but I've never had a fresh goat cheese that has a cottage cheesy like texture. And so I don't know whether it's possible. But what we'll do is I'll do a little bit of research. Well, Jack's going to get a response this week. He's going to email it to me. And then uh, once I get that, I'll do a little separate research on the, all the technical literature that I uh, steal access to. And then we'll reconvene next week with the answer. Sound good? Yeah, right on. That'd be great. And right. um, if you have a quick second, I have one more non-food-related question. Uh-oh. What do you got? Uh, what, what kind of bike do you ride? Okay. So uh, I used uh, – I ride – here's the thing. Uh, in New York City, you know, we have to have those giant kryptonite chain locks or your bike gets stolen. Oh, yeah. So the lock weighs roughly what my bike would weigh, right? 
Plus, yeah. you have to carry the, the keys, and then you have to sit there, and you have to string the, the, the chain through all of the stuff. So I made a decision uh, a long time ago that I was not going to ever lock my bike, ever. And so, so the answer, therefore, is that you need to get a folding bike. So I bought a, a, a folding bike called a down tube, which is really cheap because you, I'm a cheap bastard. So that's right or wrong. So cheap. Uh, I'm a cheap ass. So I bought this down too, but it got fairly good ratings. Uh, and uh, I proceeded because I would throw it in my closet when I got home to uh, completely uh, destroy the derailleur every day. So I was throwing my chain like, you know, three times a day. And I got so irritated that, uh, you know, I was like, crap on this. I'm ripping all of the, the gears out and uh, I'm going to make it into a single speed. But then I was like, you know what? The hell with it. Because it's going to be crazy anyway, I'm just going to go full stupid. And I made it a fixed, fixed gear folder on 20s. It's riding 20-inch wheels. Which, by the way, people don't look into the physics of it. In a New York City ride, if you're doing a lot of stop and starts, the 20s are as fast or faster than unless you're going to buy really high-end uh, full-size jobs. Anywho. So I was like, ah, I'll turn it into a fix because why not? Because I can, I can do it. And then I got kind of addicted to the fixing. But I leave the brakes on because I'm not one of those guys, right? The brakes. Oh, good, uh, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, the problem with the down tube is, is that the, the, uh, you know, the steering is so high up on a cantilever that because you're fixed, you start really, really, really hard. And so I snapped on going down the Williamsburg, I snapped the uh, steering off and then had to negotiate going down the Williamsburg Bridge with, with a st- snapped uh, – uh, column there and, and then I so I was like uh, I got another one of that because it was under warranty snapped it again so I was like crap on this and now I ride a, a Zooter Swift which has a guaranteed for life frame uh, I used to ride really thin Schwalbe's uh, on, the, on the I ride regular like they're custom wheels but they're not real they're like regular velo rims and then with uh, I ride yeah, yeah. Schwalbe Schwalbe uh, uh, Big Apples just because uh I used to ride thin, and I was a little bit faster, but you know, I've seen too many people wipe out on those thin guys. If any, if any crap gets on the road, that I was like, the hell with this. Especially with the with the 20s, it's really easy to wipe out. So crap on, I got wider. Thanks, but it's still, and I have those. I have that weird butt friendly seat. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's what I. Right. It's still it's, anyway, it's modified. Yeah. It's modified beyond being fit, whatever. But yeah, that's what I ride. Cool. Thanks very much. I, uh, I figured you'd have a pretty interesting bike. Um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, if the bike the bike snob would have a field day with my bike, I'm sure. But uh, if any of you guys read the, the bike snob, but anyway. All right. Thanks again for taking my call. All right. Thanks. All right. So back to uh, Brian uh, and Shadberries and ice cream. Okay. I noticed that you tweeted a recipe for a drink special that contains Shadberries. Uh, it's fruit picking time around here, and I've never had one. Where can I find them, and how can I identify them? Uh, also, there are tons of mulberries around New York that are ripe for picking. It's a little old. The shadberries are gone now next year, though. Uh, also, I think they're the same as June berries, but I'm not sure if – I think people might call service berries something else. Look, they're on a tr- – I can recognize it when I see it, but it's hard to describe. Uh, once you identify it, you're going to identify it uh, forever. So they're purple. They go red to dark purple when they're ripe, berries. They're on a tree – that bears alternate leaves, of course, you know, nine-tenths of trees other than, you know, maples, ashes, and, um, you know, a couple others, uh, dogwoods, uh, are alternate. So, you know, that's not much of a help. It's the finely serrated kind of elliptical leaves, also not very much of a help. If you look at the berries, they look a little bit like a blueberry, and they have that, I guess it's a calyx thing coming off of it. But if you just look up in a couple of books, um, you can see the variants of it. And once you see it, you like, once you see it once, you like, you get it, and that's it. 
Uh, and there's a, a patch of them on Eldritch Street near the uh, the short like housing buildings there uh, in the in the Lower East Side. If you want to see them, but the berries are all gone on those anyway. And they have an astringent uh, kind of uh, acidic taste that I like because if you mash them and let them sit on the skins a while before you spin them off, they pull up a uh, l- little bit more tannin than uh, like a blueberry, a little bit more musky, but not probably as tannic as cassis. Oh, they're good. I like them. You've had them before, right, Sess? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so mulberries. Um, any favorite spot to get some mulberries? Any good techniques for picking them? They're so fragile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a technique is to get someone else to pick them for you or wear gloves, but don't because that looks dumb. If you're walking around the city picking berries with gloves, what do you think about it? If you see a, if you see a dude picking berries with gloves in the street, what do you say about it, Sess? I don't know. I've never what's I don't your, What's your feeling? I don't feeling? know. I, I mean, I don't know. You'd be like, what the hell is that guy doing? Right? Yeah. I don't know. Just get the... Well, it does stay in the hell out of you. Um, also... I spotted a few peach trees uh, and sour cherry trees. I, would, I can't have the sour cherries. I'm eager to pick them too. What's the best way? I don't have a fruit picker. Any way to make one that works? That's an interesting question. Probably for things like uh, peaches, you could you know get like uh, – like they, they make fruit picking basket things, but then you have to fix it to the end of an extendable pole. That I wouldn't mind looking like a lunatic around. Hey, what, what are you doing up there? Hey, oh, I'm picking peaches. What's wrong with you? Uh, the mulberries, uh, a good place to pick them that's pleasant to go to is uh, – uh, in the park that's off of 158th Street and Riverside Drive, you go over to the river on the west side and you walk up and there's a bunch of – they have a sh- boatload – I was about to curse. They have a boatload of, uh, of Juneberry, Shadberries there, but then they also have a bunch of mulberry trees up in that area. And there's a bunch just scattered around the city. There's some in the parks that are up Allen Street. Uh, or is that Christy? You know what I'm talking about? It's Christy. Mm-hmm. It's Christy Forsyth, right? Uh, and we found a good one near – what restaurant we always used to go to where we found one where we used to eat with Maria? There was a really nice one there. Oh, yeah. Mm, can't remember. Anyway, my recommendation, like I said before, is to pick, and I'm too stupid to do this, but you got to have a long view on this. So pick a couple of berries this year and then mark the tree. Like take a picture and geotag it or whatever. Like, oh, this is the good one. And then you can go back and get it the next year because uh, I mentioned this uh, last week when I started talking about your question. uh, that Mulberry trees are extremely variable in fruit quality. Uh, So anyway, that's that's that's. But I would say. Ice cream question. Jenny Bauer from Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams uses uh, a milk filtration technique. Uh, and then this is a paraphrasing of it. Uh, start with raw grass-fed, uh, grass-pastured milk from the cows right at the dairy. Milk comes in and we separate it uh, into a centerf- uh, in a centrifuge into heavy cream and skim milk, as per usual. The cream goes into a tank. Uh, when I go to the dairy, that's the first place I go. I take a ladle and sip it foamy, like slightly whipped cream. Okay. Uh, the skim milk then goes through a nanofiltration system. Uh, which is uh, – this is uh, quoting, I think, Jenny Bauer in Food and Wine. So Food and Wine did uh, uh, an article called Lessons from Jenny Britton Bauer, and this is quoted from that. Uh, and this is really cool where old technique meets modern. The filtration system runs the milk across a membrane multiple times to remove about 60% of the water. The water is not good in ice cream because it makes it icy. Removing water also concentrates the proteins to give it more body and texture. We're working with two proteins, the casein uh, and whey proteins, which gives great smoothness. So then we take the concentrated skim milk. Containing proteins and uh, lactose and mix it back with the cream to give us a base of about 15% butterfat, perfect for ice cream. It's still raw and not been cooked, so then we add sugar and batch pasteurize at 175 degrees. Uh, ultra-pasteurized milks are heated to 300 plus, and they shoot through a tiny pipe, which strips a lot of the flavor out. And uh, anyway, batch pasteurization gives the milk a nice cooked custardy flavor and bonds the water to the proteins, butterfat, and sugar. I don't know if I believe that. But I, don't, I don't know exactly what she means by it. Uh, then we shoot it through a homogenizer while it's still hot so that the butterfat is melted and looser. We homogenize it to make the butterfat 
molecules. I think she means like, you know, the, the micelles, the same size as all the other ones. Uh, and if we didn't, all those big butterfat molecules would find each other and make butter. The homogenizer shoots it through, uh, blah, 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 yakety, schmackety. Uh, f- yakety, yakety, yakety. Um, and then she, she spins it, and then they pack it all by hand, thousands a week. And she says there are machines for packing, but they uh, require a much thinner ice cream, so it never freezes up the same way that ours do. Okay, so now back to the question part of it. This is not the quote anymore. She recommends that at home we should boil the milk for ice cream base for four minutes. The boiling is key. It evaporates excess water like our nanofiltration system. Like pasteurization, it bonds uh, sugar and fat to the water and it denatures the whey proteins to make them smooth. Uh, then you add uh, cream cheese to mimic the thickening of homogenization to bulk up the body. And then they, Food & Wine did an article where they tested it. Uh, isn't it just easier to add – and then your question is, isn't it easier to add powdered milk to the base – What's in cream cheese other than stabilizers that powdered milk doesn't have? Well, you know, other than stabilizers, there's a boat ton of stabilizers in cream cheese. That's why it's so smooth. If you've ever had non-stabilized cream cheese, it's really kind of grainy, which I actually like. The best uh, cream cheese that I've ever purchased is uh, bought at Russ and Daughters, and it's completely non-stabilized cream cheese, so it only lasts a couple of days, and it's kind of grainy, but it has such kind of an amazing texture. No, no offense to Philly. In fact, Booker, Stas, you appreciate this, Booker hates the high-quality cream cheese and he's like, I prefer Philadelphia brand cream cheese. And, nice. and then so he makes me buy the most expensive salmons like in the world fundamentally it's at Russ and Daughters and, and, and wants the, the, you know, the, uh, the mass market cream cheese. That's a nice way of saying it, right? Mass market. Hey, look, I eat Philly. Anyways, um, isn't it easier to add powdered milk to the base? Do you have any thoughts on the science behind what's going on here? Well, I mean, you know, what I typically do is – Add just add more cream to the milk to get the butterfat content up, and then yes, I add powdered milk to the base. A lot of powdered milk doesn't taste very good, so I can see boiling down your milk to remove some of the water, and then but you're still adding less cream. Look, I would spend more time worrying about the quality of the cream that you use. Nine tenths of the cream that you buy in the supermarket is um, you know ultra pasteurized because it's sitting around for a long time and they want it to last forever. So. Like if you're sourcing like a super nice cream that hasn't been completely whacked out of whack by the, uh, you know, by the by the homogenation by boiling it, I mean I think it's a little interesting that she's into the raw thing and the other thing and a low temperature pasteurizing, but then you're boiling out your 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 milk to get well at least the skin portion of it to get. I mean, in other words, I don't know about this. I don't. I mean, but the thing is, I'm sure they tested it. Sure, it's delicious, and the cream cheese is going to add some acidity to, which I don't know that you necessarily want. Like when I'm doing it. I, add, I would add uh, – I mean, remember also she's doing Philly style, so she's not adding any eggs to it. I almost always make egg style. When I make Philly style, I add stabilizers to it. Uh, like I used to use flavor-free guar. Uh, you could also use locust bean gum. Uh, Gelan makes a super-duper awesome stabilizer because it's like hyper-creamy in, in small amounts, like a fluid gel. It's ridiculous. Uh, and then you can also light it on fire. Um, don't add guar and gelan because then it gets stretchy like Celeptonderma. Um, so anyway, I add stabilizers. I just up my cream component, and if I want to bulk out the proteins more, I add powder. But it is true that some powders don't taste good, right? Hmm. Is that a good answer? Mm-hmm. I've never had her ice cream, but all of the little doodads in the Yelp for – I think she's Ohio or something. All the little doodads are like awesome, best, awesome, best. I don't know. We've got another caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, Dave. Um so uh, my name is Anthony. I'm from D.C. Um, I've been working on a fish sausage uh, for the fish shop that I work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking to make a 
basically a sausage with the texture and the snap of a hot dog, but emulsified. Um, our first attempt, we just did, uh, you know, traditional mousseline. It was too soft. Yeah. Uh, so we did a couple batches, um, and we're using a mix of, like, probably 50, 60% white fish, and then the rest is scallop and uh, shrimp. Yep. Um, puree it in food processor. Uh, I've tried egg whites, uh, gelatin, um, uh, milk powder, and tapioca starch, like different variations of those. Uh, tapioca starch, and I'm assuming potato starch, anything else would be. It's very pasty and starchy tasting. That was almost inedible. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what you might use to give it a little bit more of that uh, firmness, that kind of bite to it. All right, cool. You're packing them into lamb casings? Um, right now, we've just been packing them. Um, that's the plan. It's going to be lamb casings, but right now we've just been wrapping them in plastic and poaching them off okay. uh, to try it out. Wait, you're obviously going to get more snap in the lamb casing, but you're not getting the texture you want out of it. You want more of the texture of a traditional uh, emulsified sausage. Yeah. And, you know, most seafood sausages have that very light kind of almost dumpling-like texture to them. Stas, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this on air, whether this came up on air, did it? She hates seafood sausage. Can you believe it? Yeah. Can you believe this lady? Anyways, so yeah. uh, uh, very simple thing for you. Now, here's the deal. Okay. You're going to be able to get anything in between where you are right now and surimi just by using meat glue. I mean, I wouldn't go all the way to surimi if I was you. But, you know, you're going to be able to get anything in between. Now, meat okay. glue is going to bind the proteins together and – I have myself made uh, like bound uh, sausages. Uh, I think I've done them with with seafood, but I've done definitely done them before where they're like ping pong balls. So you can definitely go over. So okay. you're, you're never ever gonna want to go over one percent of meat glue. Don't but don't gotcha. even start near that high. And also uh, the how much the meat glue is going to make it into a ping pong ball is going to be dependent on how much salt is present. And then how much, uh, you know, how much food processing or grinding you get after you put the meat glue in. And remember, you have to pump the uh, sausages out within – after you add the meat glue within about five to ten minutes because okay. it's going to start setting up. So I would gotcha. start with somewhere like a quarter percent and I would wait – I would take it to taste to, to get it just where you want and then I would – at the last minute, blitz in a one quarter of one percent of uh, Activa RM, and then which you can get at modernistpantry.com. And then uh, yeah. I would you know blend that in, and then pipe it right away, or just roll it in plastic for your tests. And then uh, you know if you want to do it, you can you can poach them off at fifty five uh, Celsius to do a quick set on them, so that you don't have to wait forever in a day. And then you can. Do your regular cook off wherever you, where, you know, at whatever you want, or you can let it sit in the fridge for four hours to overnight to to set up, and then you to should be up. able to get a judge. It will remember though, if you're going to hold these things overnight, seventy to eighty percent of the texture will develop over that four hour period, but then it's okay. going to get a little springier overnight as it continues to bond if it's sitting in your fridge without getting touched. So our our game plan is to pre poach them so. So we're using, um, we only sell, you know, fish that's been filleted for a couple of days, maybe. So we're using the straps and the fillets that we haven't sold. Um, and they're still perfectly edible, but they don't look, you know, the freshest possible. So we're pre-poaching them uh, so we can sell without, um, you know, 
without worrying about the customer taking them out the next day and, you know, they've turned after a day or two rather than, sure. you know, four days. Um, sure. So once, so, you po- once you poach it, the, the enzyme is going to get deactivated. It's not going to get any stiffer. So if, you're gonna, okay. if you know you're going to poach them off, then I recommend, uh, I recommend like, like doing a, 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 an initial poach off. Like if you're going to do lamb casing size, an initial poach yeah. off at like 55 Celsius for like, for like 10 minutes and, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes, that should set it. And then you can mm-hmm. put them in whatever temperature you want to cook them to cook them, okay. you know, whatever you're going to do to, to, you know, do the bacteria kill step and then uh, take them out and you're ready to rock and roll. And then and the good thing about that is you can run through a couple of cycles with the meat glue to figure out how much you want to add. Gotcha. And I could probably also time it so that I get just the right amount of set on the meat glue to texture that we want, correct? To Wait, I say that last part of that sentence again? The right uh, amount of uh, set so to I do what? Time, just time out when we poach them or when we do the 55 Celsius uh, water bath to the texture that we want. So where it's like two hours or three or four hours, we can almost fine-tune it to well, texture, correct? Yeah, you, yes, but the, the 55 sets it. Like the, like the enzyme yeah. is still working, so you don't have to wait even like you can wait like fifteen minutes or ten okay. and set it at a fifty five degree bath. That's how Wiley used to make his shrimp noodles, or I guess okay. still does make his shrimp noodles. Uh, I mean, you could go a little lower, like fifty fifty two, fifty three. If you're going to cook it right away, you know you could even do fifty, and that'll set it right away. But I usually do fifty five because it's a nice safe number. Um, you know, and you're not growing any bacteria in the bath itself. So uh, I usually do 55. But then you don't you don't okay. have to wait at all. So what you then is you you make them, you you stuff them, you poach them off, and then you know you're you're good. And then gotcha. I would just base um, the amount of meat glue based on that. Gotcha. And um, I was one other thought I had on it was that the protein you know the protein uh, percentage in fish is a lot lower than meat. Would um, adding uh, a protein powder like uh, soy protein uh, isolate would that help maybe give a firmer texture as well, or and is that just going to be a waste of time? Uh, with the meat glue, I wouldn't. It already has casein in it, which is helper. And if you if you have yeah. customers that don't want the casein, you can get one without casein. And it, but rem- fish, remember how soluble like fish. Uh, think of how sticky fish gets. Yeah. Because like a lot of the proteins are actually soluble, so once you add meat glue to it, sucker like that's what like the, the fact that the protein comes out is why we do uh, a brine step before you're going to do low temp. Otherwise, you get that white albumin bloom on the outside, which looks nasty. So exactly. I don't think you're going to have a problem with uh, I don't think you're going to have a problem with the uh, with the meat glue on its own, rather than having okay. to add like a separate thing because that's just another thing, and then. You know the meat glue is in such small percentage, and that you—I don't even know. I mean, technically, I don't know what you're labeling, but I don't know. I, just, I think it's better than having to add like a, another, another thing. You know. Exactly, and I should add the uh, meat glue and powder, or should I make the a paste with it and then add it to the mix? I would add it to the mix in powder form, unless you're having trouble, like unless it's such a big batch that you're worried it's not going to get in. In which case, but remember, when you're doing that, you're adding water. So as long as you're okay with that, yeah. you could do it that way. But also, every just the key thing, everything quick. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All righty. All right. Thank you. Let us know how it I works. Good luck with help. it. No problem. Super, all right. Super quick break. Uh, all right. Come right back.
following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Nice. We back? Sam wrote in about, uh, I wonder whether it's the same Sam. Hmm, interesting. Uh, I have another quick question for Dave. The old school PolyScience blue and white circulator has two pump speeds, slow and fast. Uh, does heating the water up uh, in the fast pump speed help the circulator heat up faster, Sam? Uh, no. Here's the deal. The old circulators had a low and a high pump speed for this reason and this reason only. Uh, a lot of laboratory processes uh, take place very close to ambient temperature. And on the high pump speed, you add a lot of friction to the system, and so you can heat the water uh, just because the pump speed is higher. This is according to Philip Preston. This is not – I don't want someone calling me back and saying there's not enough friction. Listen, I don't want to hear about it. I'm like This is like from the mouth of the designer of the piece of equipment. Uh, and so the low pump speed is there just so that you're not dumping a lot of extra energy in in case you're doing ambient or subambient cooling, like with an ice bath or something like this, right? Uh, so uh, in, a cooking, uh, in a cooking scenario, you should always use high, always, unless you have something that's extremely fragile that's getting knocked around. Like, for instance, let's say you put eggs in the circulator and you didn't take the care to make sure that they're not rattling around. Like, I'm not going to name names, but I saw a four, like a three Michelin star chef have – uh, in a demo, I think I told this before, but the eggs just rattling around the freaking circulator bin. And I was like, oh, my God, why do you hate eggs so much? Why are you doing a demo if you hate eggs? Uh, so in that case, maybe you can put it on low, but always keep it on high. Always keep it on high. Um, and I don't know because I don't know which Sam you are, but there another Sam that wrote in saying, on food storage, can you ask Dave this question on the radio show? Do you know any book or resource dedicated to optimal food storage? For example, how best to store celery? Thanks, Sam. Uh, I don't. Uh, except for Harold, I didn't have a chance to go peruse my copy, but Harold McGee's uh, third, well, fourth, if you count the uh, if you count the second edition of On Food and Cooking as a different book, which I think you should. Like so many chapters are rewritten, so we'll call it his fourth book, uh, The Keys to Good Cooking. In that, he has a lot of tips for uh, optimum storage of things. So, uh, and that's like one of the because that book, see. Like what a lot of people don't get it, but that book is meant to be like go-to kitchen reference on stuff like storage. So I need to go reread it, but I think that's got a lot of stuff like that. And I would welcome anyone tweeting on in books they have on that on that subject. Uh, You know, because mostly I read kind of technical crap on this on this sort of thing. Uh, And Eric Michael Morris from Little Rock wrote in uh, this question on sugar-free gelato. and uh, I'm, what I'm going to have to do is punt this to next week because I need some more information from you, uh, Eric. Sorry uh, if this has been addressed before. I love the show but haven't listened to them all, like if you have problems. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm the GM of a wood oven southern Italian-style pizza and salad place in Little Rock, Arkansas. We make our own gelato fresh daily. I was curious about making a sugar-free uh, gelato slash sorbetto. What do you think of that word, Sus? Fine. You like that word? Because you like anything Italian or Swiss. How it like? Except for the people. You don't like? The, I thought you love the people. No, I don't like the people. Where in Switzerland or Italy? Both. You don't like northern Italians or southern Italians? I hate all Italians. 
You heard what it here the, first. What the hell? She likes the language, likes the culture. Food. Food. Landscape. Landscape. But the people, ah, ah, wipe them off. Uh, she's just like, people, I just want you to, like, I work with a ball of hate. Just a straight up mm. ball of hate. I, I want to do, um, Jack, can you do like a ball of confusion cover, like somehow referencing like ball of, ball of hatred for Stas? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was curious about making a sugar-free gelato slash sorbetto. The owner was trying to explain inverted sugars and crap to me that is over my head. Any advice on uh, making outstanding sugar-free gelato? Thanks, Eric Michael Morris. Okay, here's, here's the questions that I have for you, Eric. So the question straight up off the bat is why do you want it to be sugar-free? In other words, are you trying to make it savory or is it for a diabetic application or is it just that you want to have no added sugar but you're okay with the sugar in fruits, right? Because sugar is a – you know the sugar is there as a uh, – as a texture agent, right? So you can, and, you know, invert sugar, so sugar, sucrose, is a disaccharide. It's, like, joined together, and it tends to crystallize and have other things, and invert sugar tends to make things, uh, and it has a certain amount of freezing point depression to it, right? And if you were to break that same molecule, sucrose, into its two constituent parts, which are glucose and fructose, all of a sudden it depresses the freezing point even more. So adding a certain amount like uh, decreases the freezing point uh, more, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the, that's not the, the, the point here. The point is, is that why do you want to do what you're doing? Um, if you want it to taste the same as an ice cream or a gelato, unless you're going to add artificial sweeteners to it, don't add stevia. I hate stevia. Stas, come on, with me. You hate stevia? Mm-hmm. Jack, you hate stevia? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I hate stevia. I have no, I have no problem – with people who like it, except for what that means is that you like something that tastes bad. I mean, it's possible that some people can't taste that awful, poisonous, metallic, bitter taste at the end of Stevia. It's possible. Mm -hmm. But it's just wretched. Anyways, so the question is, do you want to add an artificial sweetener, in which case you need to bulk it up with a sweetener uh, that is, uh, if if you're looking for calories, it's non-caloric and uh, has the same sort of uh, freezing point depression uh, and texturizing properties. Uh, in which case I'd have to look up what I think the best kind of, uh, you know, but the, the other thing is when you move to high bulk uh, uh, sugars like that, like isomalt, then you increase the poop pensity of the ice cream because you're not digesting the stuff. Anything you don't digest increases the poop potential of what you're working on, which is why everyone worries about isomalt even though you really don't eat that much of isomalt. You know what I'm talking about, Stas? Yep. Yeah. Anywho. Uh, if you're just looking to use like natural fruit juice, then get yourself a refractometer and boil your you know boil your fruit juice down until it's basically sugar, and then uh, add it back to it and measure the measure you know measure the refractometer what your sugar level is. Um, have I hit any other ones? Anyway, write me back and tell me like exactly what you want this sucker to taste like versus what you're tasting like now, and I can uh, get you a better answer as to, as to what you're doing. But the sugar is doing three things. It's providing a taste, which you may or may not want. Um, it's uh, depressing the freezing point, which you definitely want. Otherwise, it's hard like a rock. And even aside from that, it adds uh, texturizing properties to it. So three things, uh, and I'm sure many, many others. Four-minute warning. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay, so is there anyone I promised I'd get to? Let me get back to the, to the top of this. I'm going to get the bone marrow next week because I'm going to ask Nils about that uh, because he's mad. Chris May writes in, I think you've touched on this topic before, but I'm interested in using my soon-to-arrive kickstarted Anova water circulator to temper a ginger a decoctions. What do you think about decoction as it works? It's fine. Yeah. 
uh, in a pot. I make ginger beer often and typically make my primary decoction by boiling blended ginger for the last eight minutes of a 15-minute boil. Recently, I've started supplementing cold-pressed ginger juice and water in my batches after the initial boil. However, raw cold-pressed ginger juice is way too astringent and aggressive. In my initial experiments, I found that even microwaving the ginger juice to as low as 120 uh, Fahrenheit softens the jagged edges of the raw ginger and makes it pop. Uh, but I would like uh, precision control the ginger decoction temperature for future recipes, keeping it as raw slash strong as possible. My question is this. Is a water circulator uh, like the Inova an acceptable precision tool to heat the two to four cups of my ginger decoction? My primary concerns are cleaning the circulator adequately and harming the circulator somehow. Here's what you do. Put it in a Ziploc bag and then put the Ziploc bag in the water. Bang. Done. Right? Boom. Boom. Or, yeah, just do that. And then if you want it to flash off, you can leave the Ziploc bag open and clip it to the sides of your circulator. I've done that a million times. Boom. Done. Hooked you up on that. Second question. Can you describe the effects of heat on an aromatic such as ginger? I assume it's not denaturing the ginger since there's no protein. There are proteins, but uh, there are no proteins that are on or retangling. But I'd love to get some kind of theoretical insight into the transformation from raw ginger to the warm transcendent melange. Uh, just a bit of heat provides. Many thanks, and keep it up, Chris May. Okay. So um, ginger has a, a bunch of stuff going on. There are uh, volatile aromatics. These things uh, dissipate on heating, even low heating, such that dried ginger, which is rarely heated above 40 degrees Celsius, often loses a huge percentage of its volatiles over time. So what you're doing when you do that is you're losing your citrus notes and things like this. Uh, Then the non-volatile side, which we'll call the pungent side, uh, primarily in the raw ginger, you have these things called gingerols. And the gingerols are changed even with mild heat over prolonged times or with higher heats for longer times into these things called shogels and uh, zingerones. And those are less pungent. So like as you change, you change the flavor and the pungency. And there are some kinetics. You can look online. Um, I have just downloaded a book called Spice Chemistry, and I'm going to read it a little bit more. But even low temperatures like you're describing will, one, drive off the volatiles and radically change what's going on. And B, will, uh, will denature, if you hold, not denature, but will, will uh, hydrolyze uh, gingerol to its other components. Now, if you're at like 80C, like, you know, by the time you've gone for like five hours at ADC, you've, you've already, you know, hydrolyzed like half of the gingerol that's present. So, and also a lot depends on what varietal you're starting with. You're starting with the Jamaican ginger, African ginger, and Asian ginger. How old was it when it was picked, et cetera, et cetera, because the longer it grows underground, the more fibrous it gets and kind of, uh, the, the harsher it gets. Anyway, uh, so that was, uh, that, that was that. I'm about to get kicked off, so I'll just say that the other questions, uh, I will answer next week. I had some uh, questions on the Twitter about putting oysters. Remember the old oyster trick I used to do? Uh, remind me to talk about that next week. Uh, and we'll come back next week with the cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.